You're listening to Errol Parker and Clancy Overall, editors of the Batuta Advocate on Desert Rock FM. Welcome back to the Batuta Advocate radio show. You're joined by myself, Clancy Overall. This week, Errol Parker, editor-at-large, is up chasing a news story up in uh, Longreach. They just had the big fundraiser concert out there in Durambandi. Big red bash on at Birdsville. We've had a bit going on in the southwest of, uh, of Queensland. And um, today, we're, you know, we've been on a roll uh, of late on the Batuta Advocate radio show interviewing a whole lot of different people uh, from the music industry. Today, we're actually interviewing a bloke who, if I've done my research correctly, got his start down there in the River City. That, you know, by my standards, makes him a proud Queenslander, makes him a Queensland export. Thank you for joining us today, Glenn Wheatley. Clancy, very good to be here. Yes, and I am a Queensland import in Melbourne now, <laughs> in Cremorne, Melbourne. So can you tell us a, a little bit, I mean, you are a musician, a businessman, a talent manager, as um, as we were just talking about off the microphone before, for a time there you were the face of Telstra. You've worked in all all sides of the stage, I guess. You've been on stage, well, you've been out the back. Well, I, I guess that's right, mate. I mean, I left Brisbane in a, a little blues band called Bay City Union, and uh, in that band we had... Matt Taylor singing lead and Phil Manning on guitar and myself on bass. Uh, we, we were a, 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 an 18-year-old blues band, if you can believe that. I mean, as people who hadn't suffered in life mm-hmm. <laughs> and hadn't suffered enough, but we were trying to be a blues band. And we, we did okay, but uh, we, we eventually parted ways here in Melbourne and I eventually joined the Master's Apprentices. So I went from blues band to pop star, uh, yeah. Overnight, and um, I, I I love the uh, transition. Now, can you just tell me a little bit about the blues influence? There was a lot, you know, there was a lot of blues influence on your generation. Is that partly because there were so many young fellows whose parents had come, you know, as ten pound palms, and, <laughs> and um, for whatever reason, blues were a part of their life? Well, I, I came from the western suburbs of Brisbane, yep. and uh, and we were. Absolutely working class family. So did that qualify me to be in a blues band? It probably gave me a good heads up, you know, gave me a good start life to to think, you know, I've got some problems mm. and you know, and let's put it in a blues band. But no, I, I, I guess there was a bit of an era. I came out of the Lobby Lloyd Purple Hearts era in Brisbane and Lobby, I have to give credit, gave me my big break in, in the music business. He was the one that asked me to come along as a believe it or not, a 17-year-old, to play rhythm guitar for the Purple Hearts, the biggest band in Brisbane at the time, and I could not believe my luck. I mean, I turned up on that first night, Lobby put a 12-string Rickenbacker around me, plugged me into a <laughs> Vox AC30. Well, I could have gone to heaven. That yep. was unbelievable. And here was Lobby <laughs> giving me a big chance uh, to, to play with the big boys, and I was a kid, but, uh, you know, it, it was my first big break, and, and I'll never forget Lobby for giving me that, that, that opportunity. It was wonderful. As far as you, your career in music goes, playing music was made up at least 50% of it, you'd say, in, in terms of the, in, in, in the timeline. Um, yep. you're, on, you're on stage for a fair whack before you even got into management and talent management yep. and promoting. What was the scenario like, you know, the... the the Glenn Wheatley we know today is, you know, the man responsible for Farnham's comeback tours and, and um, you know, and, and the first person yep. to kind of uh, 
cross into the dark side and, and, and be able to speak on behalf of the Australian musician when it comes to, you know, their management. What were you living like, you know? Because obviously your experience as a musician informed your career in talent management. What, what, how were you well, living? Were, you, were, were, were people living in poverty? Were you, on, were you living on couches in St Kilda? <laughs> well, look, I, I was when we first came down. There's no doubt about that. We were head to toe in single beds, base in the union, you know, trying to flat together in Beaconsfield Parade, St Kilda, and in, a, in a little hostel-type place. It, it was hand-to-mouth. There's no doubt about it. We lived by, you know, pinching bottles of milk off people's porches and, and bread from the Bella Carver bakery and you know we, it was survival of the fittest in those days but the masters became a little bit easier but there were still issues as to uh, with with management that i had at the time which is why i ended up becoming not only the bass player for the masters but also the manager because mm-hmm. i had to sack our manager i mean he was not doing a very good job it turns out he was the same manager for john farnham that's where i met john we were flatmates together in in st kilda and managed by the same guy but it all happened to me, oddly enough, in Brisbane, my hometown. And here I was playing at the Festival Hall in Brisbane with the Master's Apprentices, sold out. And uh, in the audience was my mother, proud as punch to see the old man or son up on stage. But unfortunately, the kids were going crazy. They were hysterical. They all stormed the stage and ripped all my clothes off, ripped all Jim Key's clothes off. And the police came and closed us down because they thought we were indecently exposed. <laughs> and so, but the crowd just went crazy. And they cut, shut the show down. And then I remember walking backstage, stepping over all these fainted dead bodies of, of young girls that were just passed out and, and, and fainted. And they're all lying on, on the floor. I had to step over them. And all I could remember was the promoter running around going, we had a bigger crowd than the Beatles. And I thought, <laughs> hang on, a bigger crowd than the Beatles. And I got back that night to Lennon's Hotel. I had to go through the foyer with carrying my guitar in a pair, and just dressed in jocks because I had no clothes. They were all ripped off me. And I got into my room. I'm still sweating from the show. My ears are ringing because the noise from the kids was so loud. And all I could think about was a bigger crowd than the Beatles. And I started to put two and two together. I thought, hang on. We just got paid the princely sum of $200, mm. but we had to fly ourselves up. I, I basically, by the time we divided that at four, that's $50, I locked $70 in my pink velvet suit that was ripped off me. So I'd lost money that night and on the headline attraction. And I thought, what's wrong with this picture? And mm. I, the, the, the penny dropped for me that night. And I started to think, you know, this is ridiculous. Our manager has sold us up here for 200 bucks and with the headline attraction. The promoter's running around going, you bloody beauty. Yeah. He's made a fortune and with a sold-out show. So that night I, I devised what we call the, the door deal. I started to think, hang on, first of all, rule number one, the manager's got to go. Two, I'm going to take over. And three, I'm going to devise... There's no such thing as a set fee for the master's apprentices anymore. I want a percentage of the gate. I want yep. a percentage of the door. And and uh, the more we draw, the more we should earn. That made sense to me. I thought <laughs> it made perfect sense. And so from there on in, we were going up for door deals. We didn't have a set fee. And my life changed. I mean, I got into the management side of the business and 
basically I've been in it ever since. So I'll just go back to that 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 event there at, at um, you know, it's, it's now known as uh, Fortitude Hall, Festival Hall it was called back then in the middle of Fortitude Valley. Yep. Yep. You were saying that they, you know, what they had a bigger crowd than the Beatles, around 7,000 people jammed into that venue, $5 yep. a ticket. Yep. So by today's standards, and I've done the uh, I've done the inflation model here. That was up that was close to half half a rock, half a million dollars in today's money. And, and the promoter was rolling in it. <laughs> I mean, I mean and, and, was, was there a Tell me about the uh, how you were received in this industry when you started uh, when you started rocking the boat and obviously ruining a very good thing they had going for them. Well, I mean, I did the same thing for John Farnham because he had the same manager, and I said to John at the time, I said, "You're going to have to sack your manager too," because I know John was going up for a flat fee, and John was all over the place. He was Johnny Farnham then. He was Sadie the cleaning lady. He was the king. He was doing the shopping centres centres. He was doing. Uh, working three different states uh, in a day. Yeah. And he's, he's going up for a flat, flat fee. So I said the same thing to him. You've got to be commensurate to your drawing power, mate, as to what your fee should be. It should be. It should not be a fixed number. It, it depends on how many people are there and what the costs are for the promoter. And, and give the promoter a fair whack, but don't let him take the gate. <laughs> we should be getting the majority of the gate. And that was... I think John, you know, unfortunately for his manager, he sacked him too. <laughs> so, <laughs> so there was certainly change going in, in the industry. I mean, we'd come from a cottage industry to actually getting into serious business now. So, you know, and, and so things ha- had to change with the times and and I, I think I had a little bit to do with it. Well, you, you also played a major role in getting the FM radio kind of uh, a bandwidth, I guess, off the ground. Uh, mate, mate I, I have a lot to do with that. I mean, I, I, FM radio, we broke Little River. I broke Little River Band in America on FM radio. And I'm coming home to Australia, still listening to 2SM, 3XY, yep. and it's all AM radio. And I think, well, why don't we have FM radio in Australia? So I spent the next two years of my life walking Parliament House carpet threadbare, talking to any politician, any Department of Communications, anybody who wanted to hear me, try and convince them that we needed to have FM radio in Australia. The problem we had was 50 years ago, the then government gave the, the, the FM band away to essential services, that is fire, police and ambulance. Right. And my job was to try and convince them, you've got to take these guys, put the essential services up on UHF where they belong, free up the FM band and we've got a whole new business. And it took me two years, but I was able to convince them. And then the, the government said, we've, we've, we've worked out how to do it all now. Thank you very much. Now the tender's going to go out. And I actually won the Melbourne tender for the first FM commercial FM license in Australia. And the race was on because they'd also given the license out in Sydney, Adelaide, Brisbane, and Perth, and Melbourne. So the race was on. I wanted to be the first to go to where. I called my station Eon FM, and we were by hell and high over high water. I wanted to be the first, and we were. We got to air on July seventh, nineteen eighty, and we were the first commercial FM as Eon FM to go to air. I mean, we had the, the studio, believe it or not, was basically made of egg cartons, 
and uh, as, as soundproofing, held up by chicken wire, <laughs> held up by by soldering iron, still on the on the, on still soldering, and alligator clips. That's all I remember is alligator clips uh, that put this station to air. But we got to air in the most incredible circumstances. And the first song we played was "New Kid in Town," and uh, we we launched commercial FM radio in Australia. Did you find yourself from going, uh, you know, from musician to disruptor to the promotions industry and management industry, and then you find yourself in a position where you're now running Eon Radio? How did it feel to kind of transition into power broker status? Well, well mate, it, it got bigger than that. I mean, from Eon FM, I ended up buying two Triple M in Sydney, and then combined Eon. I then changed Eon's name to Triple M. I bought FM 104 of Christopher's case in Brisbane. I turned that into Triple M. I bought Adelaide station that I turned into Triple M. I was actually built the start of what is now famously the Triple M network. So, I mean, that was heady stuff. That was the 80s. I mean, that was – this was – the, the transition that I had to go through, I went from a, a mom-and-pop store as little weekly communications, borrowing literally hundreds of millions of dollars, and it was it was easy in those days. It was the 80s. Mm. What can I say? Yeah. It was, the money was around. just had to pay for it. It was, it was 18% interest yep. in those days, but the money was there. The money was there to buy these, these acquisitions, and I did. But my big mistake was I ended up floating on the stock exchange as a, as a public company and I lost control and Osterio eventually came in and bought me out and I lost my little triple M's, broke my heart, but um, I, it was, again, a sign of the times. It was just the way the, the 80s were. It yeah. was big money, big interest rates, but lots of money and, and, and these deals were, I, I proved that they were achievable because... I mean, I didn't come from a business background at all. I came from a, a musical background. And um, uh, my learning curve in those days was extraordinary, but it had to be because all of a sudden, particularly when I became a public company, I listed on the stock exchange, oh, my Lord, Lord, you got annual general meetings. You've got shareholders. Yeah. You've got thousands of shareholders. <laughs> so all of a sudden, my life became deadly serious. Yeah. You know? and, <laughs> <laughs> and were you were you surrounded by you know obviously you go from uh, I guess being surrounded by rock stars who um, I guess are, are some of the greatest yes men you'll have around you, but uh, what was it like dealing with uh, you know the suck ups of big business who could who could actually see that you were onto something? Well, I did get accepted by big business. There's no doubt about it. I mean, all of a sudden they had to take this little pop star seriously because I was dealing with the biggest radio network in the country. And I was dealing at that time with two triple M, the most powerful station in the country. I had Doug Mulray, you know, doing breakfast and it became legendary, Doug, and the station became legendary. And so did my old little Eon FM, you know, now called triple M in Melbourne. Um, so we, it, it was serious business and, and FM was the growth business, of course, at that time. I mean, we, it took about five years before we overtook AM radio as preferred music stations. Because why? Because we were in stereo and it was a high quality broadcast signal and much better than low band AM radio. So 
But it was a all of a sudden. I mean, the the, the Titans, the two SMs, the you know of, of the world, were being all of a sudden taken over by the Triple M's, mm. and uh, FM had, had, had finally come of age. And yes, business did have to put their hand up and accept us. And in the early days, we couldn't even join the federation of what was called the Federation of Radio Broadcasts in those days. They wouldn't. They didn't allow the FM station owners to become members. It was an AM-dominated society. But in the end, they had to. They had to let us in because we were we were the dominant players. Yeah. So was there a while there where you were struggling to get anyone to to do your ratings? Yes, I mean uh, that was the problem. I mean, uh, the, the, we couldn't even get accepted for our ratings. It took about three years before we we got into the rating system, and lo and behold, we. I mean, it took us about five years before I got Eon FM to number one. Yeah. And uh, I mean, uh, and that, all of a sudden, the new kids had really arrived. I mean, we were taking AM out at that particular point, as as far as music is concerned. I mean, AM is still very. Uh, acceptable. I mean, 2GB, but they're, they're essentially talk stations because it's hard to put music on an AM station and compete with FM. That's yeah. the problem. Yeah, unless it's classical, of course. That's the last <laughs> yeah. thing remaining on AM. Um, <laughs> and from there, you were. How would you fill out your day? Was it all radio, 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 or are you still are you still working no, with no, your, your farms no, and your and, and your and your, no, and your my life was insane. Not only was I doing all those triple M's around the country, I was looking after Australian Call, Little River Band, John Farnham, Mondo Rock, Ross Wilson, Pseudo Echo, Real Life. My God, are you serious, Glenn? I mean, I, I was I, I was all over the place. I mean, my life had gone from, I, I mean, I, I, I'd taken on too much. There's no doubt about it. And then, of course, I decided to get into sport management, so I'm now managing golfers like Ian Baker-Finch, watching him, being with him when he wins the British Open, Wayne Grady, golfer, when he wins the PGA in America, Peter Brock, when he's winning Bathurst. I manage all these people as well. Are you serious, Glenn Weekly? <laughs> Jesus Christ. I mean, I, I mean seriously, <laughs> it, it was un, it was extraordinary. And, and my life was a merry-go-round I had to sort of take a little bit of stock of myself because uh, hubris had taken over my life. I mean, yeah. all I wanted to do was build this giant empire of radio and management and do everything, and it was it was too much. And uh, had I not taken stock, uh, I have to say, I mean, I I would not have been able to keep my marriage together and and, uh, and things like that that were so important. I mean, I had young children that I'd never seen. Mm-hmm. I, I was never there. I wasn't even there for the christenings. I was either the, the British Open or as with Little River Band in Boise, Idaho, yep. or, or Australian Call at, at the, the Corumban Beach Club. Yep. You know, I mean, I mean, what the? So I, I, I took, a, I actually took a bit of a fall, and I needed to. I needed, I needed the correction. I, I was doing too much, and uh, as I said, hubris just got in my way, and I, I was not a nice person. Mm-hmm. I, I realised that I, my life was just. I was just possessed. Were you living hard as well, or was that was that one of your skill sets that you you actually knew when to leave the after party? I, I was always the first to arrive and and the first to leave yep. at the at the after party. The, 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 there's no doubt about that. I did not, I couldn't burn those candles at both ends. Um, yeah. So I was always the first to leave <laughs> the parties. There's no doubt about that. But I mean, look, uh, look, I you know. 
there, there, I, I drank too much. Mm-hmm. I, I smoked too much. Everything was in excess. Yeah. And uh, and something had to give, and it did, thankfully, because I'm still the most happily married man I know, and the kids still think I'm king. Yeah. So, well, I that's mean, um, I, I, that. Uh, that was a lot. A lot of a lot of egos to manage around, to manage as well as managing your your home life. That's another thing I want to kind of talk about because that does affect. Uh, I guess you that would affect you in a jo- yep. job to manage excellence. And yep. they talk a lot about the madness of excellence. And it sounds like, you know, Michael Jordan and Donald Bradman wouldn't have been the type of blokes you'd want to take fishing. No. What did you find? And that, there's a crossover between sport and, and music in that regard where the best of the best are quite often possessed. How, how do you manage some of those personalities? The Little Wolf Band, for example, was like managing World War Three. <laughs> I mean, that was insane. The, the, the egos that those six members had, I mean, all fighting to get their own songs onto the album, and, and the, the, it was it was insane that looking after that band. Australian Court, I mean, James Rand is the nicest guy in the world these days, but in those days, James Rand was a pillock. I mean, he, he was impossible to deal with it with Australian Court. And then, then you get you get the other thing. You got the, the the Peter Box of people just go. He, he was a flawed genius. Yeah. I mean, the, the, he, he 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 was weird, but he was a genius, and he was the best at what he did. Inspiring, you know. I mean, so I, I loved. You, you sort of put up with the insanity because of the the, the, the creativity and the geniusness of all of these people. They're all talented in their own right, you know, whatever in in their vocations, but. He was some of them, some of them, they're tricky. <laughs> and, your, and your job is putting out fires, I guess, everywhere. Oh, uh, everywhere, mate. I become, you become father confessor. You know, you, 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 you know. You, I spent so much time, particularly with LRB. I mean, the number of times that Glenn Shorrock resigned, the number of times that B. Bertels resigned, the number of times that Graham Goble resigned. And you're sitting there and going, listen, you guys, you're at the peak of your life here. I mean, particularly Little Riverbank. We, we sold 22 million albums with LRB, essentially in America. And here they are. Uh, I'm standing in between them. Like, it's World War Three every night. And I guess it's because we're in each other's pockets. You're traveling all day. In, in those days, in those buses, you know, that are, that are just full of dormitory beds and and – after every you finish your show, you get on the bus and you drive another three hundred miles to the next city, and then you 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 get it there at some ungodly hour of the morning. We shower at the venue. We 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 didn't even have hotel rooms in those days. We just lived on the bus. I mean, <laughs> and that was before there was mobile phones, so there's no calling home. There's no you know, it, it was tough, mate. It was it was, and, and we were pioneering our way across America, but tearing each other apart doing it (laughs) (laughs) well uh you managed to maintain obviously part of your job is maintaining these relationships but you are quite you know in in the mainstream you're associated with you know managing farnham with with this comeback uh album were you the one behind all of the different comeback tours this is the last time <laughs> well, let me correct that. There was only one comeback tour, and that was the last time. No, no, no. That, the, the comeback tour was the one after the last time tour. But unfortunately, the, the last time tour started out as being the last time. It was a regional tour. I had two big tops that were going out. You know what? The four polar big tops that held four thousand people. These, these giant tents, and I had two of them. 
piggybacking across Australia. While we're playing in one, the other one's going ahead to the next city and being set up waiting for us to get into the next city. And we, 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 it was the last time for Carafa, for Geraldton, for Kalgoorlie. Yeah. Yes, we were saying goodbye. I mean, we, no one could afford, Farnham was the only one that could do the business in those sort of places to pay for this monumental cost of, of running two big tops across the country. But unfortunately, the last time ended up filtering into the cap cities and that was the rock that I perished on because I've had to live it down ever since that uh, we, we still called, you know, the last time at Rod Laverina, you idiot, Glenn. What the, what was I thinking? I mean, I still had the neon sign of the last time stuck up in, in my study at home here in Cremorne as a constant reminder, Glenn, <laughs> never say never again. Don't, don't you know, the last time I came back to Hornets, because everyone said, oh, he's coming back, you know, Dane Nelly Melba, you know, he just never, you know, he's coming back again. No, we never went away is the, is the problem. We never went away from the Cap Cities, but everybody thinks we did, and that's why every time we did not so we just copped it. The last time you were doing a regional tour like that. And then, oh, yeah. and then you accidentally did a few last time shows in major cities. In the at Farnham. Cities. Farnham had, and we've never, in- never let it down. <laughs> he had full intention of visiting again. <laughs> oh yeah, we, there's no way we're going. We, here we are selling out Rod Laver arenas. Like, mate, we've done. Can you believe we've done 98 Rod Laver arenas? John Farnham. I mean, no one. I mean, Pink banging on about her 30 shows. Hey, yeah. darling. You got a long way to go yet. Yeah. <laughs> the old man here. We've done three times your numbers, and, <laughs> and that's, you know. But but so no, we that was that was a, a grave error on my behalf that, that, that we sort of carried over into the cap cities as you know the last time. Oh, oh what was I thinking? Anyway. <laughs> yeah, it's it's a good little gimmick old Fancy's got now because because uh, no one really expects it to be the last time, but they'll go anyway. No. No, I mean the next time the, when it really is the last time, they're all going to go. Yeah, right. <laughs> the boy cried wolf. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Bullshit. We've heard that before. <laughs> so, uh, what are you up to nowadays? I mean, we mentioned it off mic as well. There was a uh, there was a little break in your career. Yes. Um, look, I'm I'm doing quite a bit actually, but I'm still involved in radio. I've got a couple of. Beautiful little FMers on the Sunshine Coast, CFM and Mix FM, mm-hmm. that I oddly enough bought from Austereo, who bought me out of the Triple M's. But they they sort of had to sell because these two stations bleed into Brisbane, and because my Triple M's are still there, you can only own two stations per market. Oh, right. So Austereo, Austereo had to sell something. They weren't going to sell me back Triple M in Brisbane, so they, they sold me the two Sunshine Coast stations, which I love. I'm very proud of them, and and and. and it keeps me involved in radio, and I, I, I love radio. Mm. I just love radio. It's just it's just part of my DNA somehow. But uh, that's keeping me busy. Farm's going to keep me busy. We've still got a, a big monster tour that I'm trying to do, but I can't confirm because of COVID, and we, well, we've put it back three times now. At the moment, don't have a starting date. I, I may have to be – I mean, we were going to redo something in, in October, November, but you know what? The borders closed and everything. I, I can't confirm it. So maybe early next year, I, or maybe mid next year. I don't know. But uh, COVID has de- decimated our business. There's no yeah. doubt about it. And, and yeah, it's I mean, difficult for us to get started again. 
I mean, it's interesting listening to your career and, and all the, you know, never once would have had to imagine in the 80s a hurdle like COVID-19. Do you, you kind of no. um, you feel like it's a baptism of fire for young people getting into this uh, industry yeah. now. Just They get to see everything that can go wrong up front. Yes. COVID has really hurt us. Mm. There, there's no doubt about it. And, um, I mean, there are some people going out, but, I mean, the, the, the American tours, they're not going to happen. Yeah. You have to come out here and quarantine for two weeks. Yeah. They're not going to do that. I mean, well, you hear stories I, of American, particularly the rappers, are thinking of the, <laughs> they think that they are they find out almost at the gate that there's this two week quarantine thing in a hotel. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. that wasn't in the brochure. Yeah, yeah, yeah I know. It's uh, it's oh god, no. Look, I, I I mean, I feel for Paul Davy. I mean, what what's he going to do with Guns and Roses? I mean, you, you put Guns and Roses in a hotel for two weeks. They'll fucking burn it to the ground. <laughs> you serious? <laughs> I can't see it happening. Unfortunately, I mean, those sort of things just, I mean, it's, it's too hard. I mean, you put an actual rose in a hotel for two weeks with the rest of the band and lock them up? Oh, gee. So you, you uh, I guess you got to see, as you were saying, it was the 80s, you could almost do anything. You didn't have COVID-19. You didn't have all these restrictions. You didn't have noise complaints for many of the inner city venues. No, we got away with with, with murder in, in, in those days, mate. But, I mean, it was it was sort of – look, it was exciting because, I mean, I mean, I bought two triple M for $90 million. Yeah. Hello? I didn't have $90 million. But, but I did. I found it. And in the end, I'm getting the banks calling me saying, uh, Glenn, why, why didn't you come to me? I'm going, oh, oh I'll, I'll come to you next time. I mean, they were throwing money at everybody. I mean, it was so easy to get. And, and, and But that was the 80s. God, I missed the 80s. <laughs> Can you tell me some of the um, some of the interesting units? Uh, you, I mean, you said before you, you would did business with Skase. Was it in the midst of all of this, uh, there was a lot of cowboys. Uh, it sounds like you yep. were you were living pretty close to that life, but at the end of the day you were still you were still being pretty open and upfront with the banks. Mate, I'm sure a lot of people thought I was the original cowboy. I mean <laughs> this rock and roller with hair down to his shoulders, you know, long blonde hair. What? And you want how much? Ninety million? I mean, to to buy a what? A radio station? I mean, but I did. I found it. And you know what? They still stacked up. All these acquisitions are based on multiples of earnings, and it's a simple equation at the end of the day. And FM was making, you know, why, why did they pay $90 million? Because they were making $10 million a year profit. Yeah. It was a simple little, you know, equation of, Seven or eight times multiple, and, and that equation still equates today. It's still it's still in, in, in place today, but just different scales that uh, of, of revenues. That's all. But in those days, FM was just on fire, and, and so it, it. But it was insane when I think about it. I mean, how the banks used to line up and <laughs> and and beg me to give have them give me money. <laughs> I mean, think about it. Me, <laughs> that's unbelievable. I mean, it sounds like you were lucky you didn't get involved in the White Shoe Brigade and start building a few high rises on the Gold Coast, mate. You, you... Uh, well, I, I dealt with them all. I mean, Chris, <laughs> dealing with Christopher's case was 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 interesting. I mean, to say the least. I mean, he was 
he was tricky, and 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 he he played the the, the art of brinkmanship all the time. I mean, uh, I, I I'd be having a meeting set up with him to, to, to try and buy FM 104, which I changed into Triple M in Brisbane. But FM 104 was the number one FM station at the time. And I'd bring all my financial people up for a meeting and we'd get to the foyer of his marble palace office and, uh, you know, lap here, blue fucking marble. And, and I said, oh, Chris is not here. And I said, but I'll, hang on. I just saw him. I just saw him at the back. He, he, he's here. Uh, no, he's not here. And uh, I, I, I couldn't believe the games that he used to play. So you and, knew what was uh, going I, on. I, and I'm sitting here with all my financial guys come up as well. And, where and are, you, where to, are you here? You're Port Douglas or you're in Brisbane? In Brisbane. No, no, Brisbane. in Brisbane. But, but I, I end up spending – I actually end up being very close to Christopher because I bought – the first condo that he built in, in, in Sheraton Mirage, yeah. I bought it as a, as a slab on the ground because I, I walked over the sink and thought, this is the best location. So I put my $10,000 lousy down deposit on this slab. He called me and he said, that's mine. And I said, well, mate, your people have already copped my $10,000 deposit. And he said, no, but that's the one I want. <laughs> I said, well, you're building it. Why didn't you put your dibs in first? Anyway, I said, no, I said, no I, I've got it. So... And he said, and I want the one next door to me to farm him. And he said, no, I'm taking that. So he quickly put his money down and stopped me giving the, the next door condo to, to farm him. So, so Christopher's case ended up becoming my neighbour. And I, I mean, and, and I have to say, you know, we actually became quite good friends through all of this after I'd spent so much money buying his radio stations. But he, he made Farnham the head of the face of Channel 7 and and all of that sort of stuff that he was doing, and Mirage. I mean, we were doing all these openings at Mirage. But it was, I mean, again, that was all the, the height of hubris, mate. I mean, I, I used to start to balance myself of, you know, is this something Christopher Scase would do? You know, like fly commercial. Uh, you know, no. He flies jets all the time, private jets. So for a while there, I'm flying around in private jets because this is the sort of thing that Christopher Scase did. And that was when I knew... I had lost the plot. I'm now, I'm now uh, basing myself on what Christopher Scase's lifestyle was. Yeah. And this guy used to fly up pork chops from Mario's, the butchers here in Melbourne, all the way to Port Douglas first class. Why? Because one couldn't buy a decent pork chop in Port Douglas. So what do you do? Fly him up first class. I, you know, so... <laughs> Did I get crazy? Yes, I got crazy. I mean, uh, I, I, had to, I had to take myself away and, and not become what Christopher's case was <laughs> and, and the White Shoe Brigade. You're absolutely right. <laughs> yeah. Well, it all adds up to an amazing career now. You're uh, you're outside of COVID. You're actually, uh, you, you, as well, you said, you're in Melbourne. You're safe for now. Yeah, no, well, now, now, now Universal want, want to make me a chart act again. They've re-released my old Master's Apprentice's Choice Cuts album that I recorded in Abbey Road 50 years ago. Mm. 15 years to the month. So that's that's what you're doing for now. Uh, you're, 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 I, 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 I'm the Universal won't make me a chart act again. Hang on. <laughs> <laughs> start, start it all again back on stage, you reckon? Yeah, I mean, I got a son who's trying to be a fucking child actor. He's going to look at me and go, "Oh, come on, get off it, Dad!" <laughs> you know, Jesus Christ, <laughs> you're a bit round the bend now. I mean, fifty years this album has been out, but anyway, it, it actually still sounds okay. I mean, and and the, 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 it's released 
I think today. Yep. And Universal are quite excited about it, and uh, they've, they've got me doing the doing the rounds now. Yeah. So I'm, uh, here I am trying to be a pop star again. Yeah, no, we're um, glad to get you. It's fifty years since. Um, <laughs> You know, Masters Apprentices. So, Choice Cuts. It was recorded in in Abbey Road. In Abbey Road, yeah. Um, and it was, and we were, we were, that was the peak of my life. And I was, I, I was like twenty two in London, swinging sixties. I got to tell you, now that was that was a trip. I mean, I got to <laughs> tell you, and and for us, the smart asses to be, hey, we're recording at Abbey Road, <laughs> you know, um, the Beatles Studio, you know. And I, yeah, <laughs> but, uh-huh. Um, and did you get your own, did you get your own photo on the zebra crossing or what? Oh, we did all of that. Of course you did. <laughs> <laughs> you know who's going to be Paul? Who's going to be Ringo? <laughs> who's going to take the shoes off? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> oh no, no, we, yeah, we did all of that. You know, but uh, no, but it was it's actually a good album, and and I'm I'm actually quite proud of it. I, it's one of those things where I was very pleased to to you know to have had the experience of recording at Abbey Road. There's no doubt about that. That was. That was exciting. I mean, that was incredible. So, uh, and we had the same engineer, Jeff Emmerich, you know, as, as the as the Beatles. So, so we're going, oh my God, you know, this is good. But it was it was a good era and a good period of my life, and 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 something I look back on with fond memories. And I'm very happy to see the old Choice Cups getting a, a second run on vinyl. Here we go again, just like the old days. <laughs> <laughs> Did you find when you look back at the music? That that was like, even though you were uh, head to toe in hostel beds, that was probably the least stressful kind of uh, era of your career. Yeah, look, we, we, we were fearless. You know, <laughs> you, you, you just you know, life. You know, I mean, it was it was different then, and and um, I mean, in those days, you got your new single. You just take it straight to the radio station. You go down to see Stan Rove nine o'clock at night. Knock on the door three three years Z. Stan will let you in, and here we are in the studio, and Stan's going, I'm going to play that record. Stan thinks this record's so nice, he's going to play it twice, and he play it again. I mean, <laughs> it doesn't happen these days. You can't even get into the bloody radio stations, let alone be in there with the, with the jocks at, <laughs> in the studio at 9 o'clock at night, and you're playing your, your stuff live. With, I mean, it was a whole different world, and it, it was we're all naive. But it was fun, and it was it was uncalculated. You know, but now it's it's a serious business, and and, and it's, there's a formula that everyone has to work to, and, and that's all algorithms, and you know, everything is everything is sort of changed. The, 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 I always sort of miss a little bit of the old days. I sound I'm, I'm sounding my age now, but you know, it was a gut feel business in those days. It's no longer seems to me to be a gut feel anymore. Yeah. It's all based on it's all based on algorithms and and numbers on commercial uh, Facebook or that we didn't have yep. in our day. I mean, we, I, I always used to joking. You know, I used to be in the retail business. I remember with Little River Band, the last two albums in America, we shipped and sold one million albums on day one of Bleeper <laughs> Catcher. One million copies of first under the wire on day one we were you know why because you're not streaming you you want a record you're gonna to have to go and buy it yeah and and if you lived in america you got to go drive 20 miles to your local walmart to buy this record and we were in the retail business 
we're no longer in the retail business. We're in the streaming business, and it's a whole different world. And we've had to adapt. You know, we've we've had to try and live with these new rules, and 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 just go with the flow here because it's no longer selling units and widgets. We're we're streaming. This is all digital. It's a different. You know, we're looking at numbers now, but not not physical numbers that you can actually hold in your hand and 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 sell <laughs> that is unless of course you are going to go and pick yourself up a vinyl copy of, of the choice cuts the master's cuts. apprentices this is it and make wheat the achard act again <laughs> bring him back bring him back <laughs> thank you for joining us glenn that was uh it was a hell of a yarn it was a great um Great little insight into an amazing career you've had, and um, all the best with the uh, with thank the return you, to well, form, return to the charts. Well, thank you, mate. And can I just say I, I love the Batuta advocates. I, I love you guys. I love your work. Um, I, I, I don't miss a beat with what you guys do. So, uh, and, and congratulations to you as well. You're doing well. Thanks, mate. Thanks, mate. Well, maybe we'll maybe we'll link up down there at uh, Beaconsfield uh, Avenue, St Kilda, sometime. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, and you promised me uh, y- your book. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We'll send it to you. Yeah, thank you. Yes. Thanks, Glenn. <laughs> thank you very much, Clarence. See you, mate.